Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, and we pray today that you would make us a listening people, that we might be those who understand your word and then live lives in light of your amazing grace. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, one of the most tortured figures in all English literature is surely Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. A ruthless tactician, hungry for power, she manipulates her weak and pliable husband to assassinate King Duncan, that they might ascend to the throne. Following the murder scene, brutal as there is blood all over the floor, she returns from Duncan's chamber, holding her blood-stained hands. Her husband collapses in guilt. He cannot bear to think of the horror of what he has just done, but she is so strong. She assures him the guilt will soon be taken away. A little water will wash us of this deed. But will it? As the play develops, the focus moves to her. And soon we watch as this icy, calloused, heartless Lady Macbeth is broken. In Act 5, Scene 1, comes the haunting, sleepwalking scene, racked with shame, unable to sleep. She paces the palace in deep psychological torment. She hallucinates and sees the blood on her hands. Here's yet a spot. Here still is the smell of blood. And then comes the devastating realization that this shattered, torn conscience can never be appeased, that the guilt can never be atoned for, that the wrong can never be forgiven. She declares, all the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. The play is a study in objective guilt of a conscience seared with shame and of the inability of man to deal with it. Because what Shakespeare is really exploring are the two responses to guilt. First, denial, as we try to suppress what we've done. And then, despair, as we face it in all of its horror. The play ends with Macbeth being killed and Lady Macbeth committing suicide. Because our problem as a human race is that we know right and wrong, and we know that God is a God to whom moral categories matter. And therefore, we long to be sure that we are people who are fit for his kingdom, that we can pass the Ten Commandment test, the Sermon on the Mount examination. We long to feel virtuous and to feel good on the inside. We hate admitting guilt and shame. We tend to think of the kingdom of God rather like the United States of America, where if you want to come in and get a green card and have indefinite leave to remain, you do need to prove good character. The police checks are done. I speak as one who's been through it. The biometrics are done. You have to go through medical examinations to show that you are fit to live in the United States of America. And then if you are fit, stamp border control will let you in. Is that what the kingdom of God is like do we have to get stamped at entry, passing the moral tests? Because this morning, Mark has something of a shock for us. 
because he wants us to see that the kingdom of God is not for the morally upright. It's not for those who are of good character in the biometrics tests, but rather for the broken. This is not a kingdom for good people, but for forgiven people, not for those who are right, but for those who are outcast. And the summary comes in verse 17, if you've got your Bible open, as Jesus declares, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Mark is a highly sophisticated editor, and he orders his gospel account in a very clever and smart way. And he deliberately places each story next to the other to make his point. Mark loves threesomes. He loves uh, snapshots of threes. And what we have this morning is a sandwich, rather like at Subway. We have two outer bits, and then the main point is in the middle. Three stories this morning of three desperate men, each making the same point that builds to an extraordinary picture of the good news of grace, like a sandwich from Subway, an outer part, another outer part, and then the meat, if you like, in the middle. So let's look at these three scenes, these three desperate men, these three points that Mark wants to make, and then at the end we're going to marvel at the good news of the kingdom of God. Scene one, we'll put it up so you can see it just uh, there, Um, an unclean outcast Verse 40 is restored. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This is a scene that would have struck terror into the hearts of the people of the day because leprosy was not just a minor skin disease like psoriasis or eczema for dermatology, but the picture of a major spiritual problem because leprosy stood as one of the main Old Testament illustrations of sin and judgment. In Leviticus 16, the law code reads this, anybody with a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of their face, and may they cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as they have the disease, they must remain unclean. They must live alone and outside the camp. The word leprosy comes from a Greek word, lepra, which means scabs or peeling. And the Greek word also carried with it a sense of being smitten. Because the leper was a picture of somebody who was smitten with sin and the curse and judgment of God. It was a progressive disease that caused scabs and crusting to the skin, white patches, hair would fall out. The disease would linger as the tissues began to degenerate, deforming the body. It would head into the peripheral nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, then to hands, feet, and earlobes. Patients with leprosy would experience a disfigurement of the skin. The bones would become twisted, the limbs disfigured, the fingers would curl. You would have a clawed hand, tumor like growths called lepromas would then appear on the skin and the respiratory tract, you'd hardly be able to breathe. And then would come the nerve damage, the loss of sensation, the inability to feel pain. So if you poured boiling water on a man with leprosy, he wouldn't feel it. 
And stories from the first century declare of how at night, because of the degenerating skin and the open wounds, rats would eat the flesh of the leper, unbeknown to him, no sensation. And so the gaping wounds would worsen overnight. So in Jesus' day, leprosy is not a disease that can be controlled by the Department for Public Health. It's far worse than that. Unclean. And that word unclean is a word taken from the Old Testament law codes. It means to be defiled, literally to be unfit for the presence of the holy God. So this man is in banishment from God, forced to live outside the camp and alone, the ultimate social lockdown, the ultimate social distancing. Alone, ostracized, a pariah, abandoned, Actually, we use the word leper like that today. She's a leper in her workplace. He's, he's like a leper at school, unfit for normal life. This picture is not like somebody with COVID-19, where after 14 days there can be a restoration to the community. It's far worse. I wonder if the picture is rather like Sierra Leone and an Ebola outbreak. And the last thing you do in Ebola is touch the person or go near. It is one of the most deadly, devastating diseases. The leper would have a bell around his neck. It would ring, warning people to scurry like cockroaches away from the approaching threat. This is a man in deep physical, emotional, mental, spiritual anguish, ritually unclean, relationally isolated. He has no workplace to go to, a dependent, a walking, talking personification of the horror and terror of the curse of God, physical pain, social isolation, spiritual banishment. The scene is desperate as he comes to Jesus then and picture him as a penitent falling on his knees, begging Jesus, clasping at his feet, appealing to him, imploring him, and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And in verse 41, the camera closes in on Jesus. Jesus' response, Jesus, what he feels, Mark tells us, and then what he does, Mark tells us, what he feels and what he does. What does he feel? Pity, but that's not the Greek word. The Greek word is anger. Is this then the anger of a busy preacher who's being interrupted on his tour? No, no, it's not that. This is the anger of a king of love who comes to his world and sees the full horror of the effects of sin and curse on the world he cares for. Jesus moved with indignation moved with rage, comes now to deal with sin decisively. Moved with pity or anger, he stretches out his hands and he touched him. And he said, I am willing, be clean. And verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. In the law codes, if you touch a leper, you are made unclean. Here it is reversed. Jesus touches, and the leprosy left him. It is clear. It is immediate. It is comprehensive. 
He doesn't have to be referred on to dermatology or anything like that. It is gone now forever. And if this man was with us this morning and we, we handed him the microphone and we said, just tell us what happened, give us your testimony, it would be a remarkable story. You wouldn't hear a pin drop. Well, he'd say, you know, I, I, lived, I lived with this thing, this, this, this disease for 25 years. It was horrific. I was homeless. Couldn't ever see my wife and three children. Couldn't attend the synagogue. No one would talk to me. I was actually right on the edge, suicidal, living in that leper's colony. And then this Jesus came. I begged him, if you are willing. And he touched me, the first touch I had felt in 25 years. And then, there and then, it went gone forever. An unclean outcast restored. I guess that raises the question, how can Jesus do this? How can he? And it takes us to our second scene, our second story, as we meet our second desperate man, the definitive forgiveness of sins. In chapter 2, verse 2, he's in Capernaum. It's reported he's at home, and many gather outside the door. There's no room at the door, and he's preaching the word to them. And then in verse 3, some men came carrying a paralytic. This man can't walk. Just the other day, I was watching a documentary about some soldiers who were fighting out in Helmand province in Afghanistan, and we were looking at this officer. I felt deeply for him. His friends were preparing for a parade, but his problem was he couldn't walk. He'd lost both legs as a device had gone off on patrol. Both legs had been blown off. And we watched as he headed into traction after surgery in the wheelchair. Uh, the prosthetic limbs were attached. The chiropractor into neurology, spinal surgery. It was an extraordinary story of pain and a long process as this man was desperate to try and march in the parade. He couldn't march in. But in Jesus' day, if you couldn't walk, there were no wheelchairs, no prosthetic limbs. Uh, there was no Rothman Institute, no chiropractor or physical therapy, no, no spinal injections or a cranial osteopathy. If you couldn't walk, you couldn't live. You couldn't work. And so you were forced to sit at the side of the road, at the sidewalk, and beg the picture of ultimate helpless hopelessness, which explains this man's desperation. His friends carry him to Jesus. It's crowded in there. They can't get in. So they do what they're able to do as they take him up onto a roof. Roofs in those days would have been flats. There would have been a ladder on the roof. They take him up. Roofs in Jesus' day weren't made of brick, but straw and uh, mortar. And so they start trying to dig a hole through the roof. Criminal damage doesn't matter right now. They're so desperate to get their friend to Jesus for healing. And you can imagine something of the scene. The, the, the preacher's at the front preaching, as preachers normally do. And then there's a sort of scratching noise at the roof. One or two people in the back look up. Normally people in the back aren't paying much attention anyway. So they look up. <laughs> And uh, the preacher carries on uh, preaching because preachers always do. 
And then the, the scratching becomes a, a banging as chunks of plaster and masonry start falling from the roof. Now even the guys in the front row are looking up, but the preacher carries on preaching because preachers always do. But actually, by the time the sermon goes on, there's now a hole in the roof, and even the preacher is looking up. As the hole gets bigger, light comes in, and suddenly this, this man is lowered down in front of them, right in front of Jesus. It's an extraordinary moment but nothing compared to what Jesus says next. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. They've brought him for a healing. He's come for a healing. Can't the preacher understand the problem? The guy can't walk. What's he talking about sins for? Isn't this rather pastorally insensitive? No, because this preacher, Jesus, sees through his immediate need to his ultimate need, which is his eternal need. And as devastating as the paralysis is, it is nothing compared to the hidden problem, the real problem, the eternal problem, which is that this man needs forgiveness for his sin. I was out with the children yesterday and happened to hear a song by Annie Lennox, and it took me back to 1986, and I remembered that song that she sung with her group, The Eurythmics. Listen to this. I was born an original sinner. I was born from original sin. If I had a dollar bill for all the things I had done, there'd be a mountain of money piled up to the sun. I know what you're thinking. That's amazingly good theology for Annie Lennox. But imagine that. Imagine if every time you sinned in thought, word, deed, publicly or hidden, you were awarded a dollar. I would be a multi-trillion air, a trillion times over. And that's the picture of the Bible. All of us, even the most upright amongst us, have rebelled against God. We have sinned and fallen short of His glory. A dollar every time you've sinned, well, a mountain of money right up to the sun. And on the day when Jesus returns, there's going to be a reckoning. He is the judge and he is perfect. The Bible speaks of a real judgment that we all deserve and of a real place that Jesus describes as hell, a place of eternal agony and torment that you deserve and I deserve because of my guilt. And there is nothing I can do. I can't turn back the clock. I can't do a Lady Macbeth and wash it clean. There's nothing I can do. I can't deny it. Judgment day is coming. And as Jesus looks at this man, he sees his ultimate need not to walk, but to be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Notice it's immediate. There's no delay. It's unconditional. There's no strings attached. It's free. He doesn't have to do any penance or go to the confessional or say 100 Our Fathers and 350 Hail Marys. He doesn't have to go on pilgrimage to Lourdes or on the Hajj in Mecca or pray to the saints or become a member of the church or get baptized or... It's absolute, definitive, total, full, absolute forgiveness forever. This is the doctrine of justification by faith through grace alone. The great battle cry of Martin Luther at the Reformation, sola gratis, that we are saved and forgiven by grace 
alone, a gift for free. As you put your trust in Jesus Christ, all of it, the affair, the abortion, whatever it is that lies in your past, is washed clean, wiped away forever. On the 1st of uh, September 2004, 32 armed Chechen rebels seized a uh, school in Beslan, Russia, and they took 1,000 hostages. The siege went on for three long days, traumatizing a Russian public and horrifying the outside world. You may well remember it. 1,100 children from elementary school, secondary school, their teachers and parents were held hostage. And it became so desperate there was no food or water, they ended up drinking their own urine. Three days later, the siege ended on the 3rd when Russian special forces stormed in. In the ensuing chaos, as explosives were detonated, 333 children and parents were killed. There was one scene that was incredibly poignant. On the floor was the body of a dead woman covered in blood and shrapnel. But as they took her body away, they discovered that underneath were her three children still alive and crying. And then it became clear what had happened as the explosives went off, which was that she had deliberately positioned herself to face the full impact of the blast, protecting her children behind her as she lay on top of them to shield them from death. And that's something of a picture of what Jesus does for us at the cross. He steps in because he loves you, and on the cross, he bears the full blast of God's righteous anger for my guilt, your shame. He bears it, and if you like, underneath his broken body, we live by his saving death. Of course, this is offensive to a moralistic world. George Bernard Shaw once heard this gospel being preached and he stormed out, saying, I will pay my own debts. And later he said, I love Christianity, but I hate Christianity. But you see, Christianity is Christianity, the Jesus who has come to forgive us by his death. I wonder how we would explain this to our children or our neighbors. I wonder if this might help us. Um, religion is spelt with two letters, D-O. There are things that you are going to have to do. You're going to have to say those Hail Marys and Our Fathers. You are going to have to give to charity and become a good person. You are going to have to go on pilgrimage to Mecca and be a good Muslim and keep the five pillars of Islam. Do, and you will be saved. But Christianity is not spelt D-O. It's spelt with four letters, D-O-N-E, done, not by me, but by Christ, who came to forgive sins at the cross. 
And we need to be in no doubt that this Jesus has authority to forgive sins because in Isaiah 35, the great sign that forgiveness is here is that sickness would be healed. In Isaiah 35, the prophet writes, your God will come. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf and stop. Then the lame will leap like deer. The sign that God is here to forgive is that the lame will walk and that disease will be reversed. Well, we've just had the leper being restored, and now the paralytic walks. Don't doubt this. God has come to earth, and he's come to bring forgiveness. Scene one, the unclean outcast restored. Scene two, through the forgiveness of our sins. And then lastly, uh, the last scene uh, for full fellowship with the Holy God. Scene three. By verse 13 in our text, we are now in a different location, as if our director has shouted, cut, we're now by the beach. And as he walks along the sea, the crowds coming after him, he passes Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says to him, follow me. Well, what's in a name? Levi. Levi, after the tribe of Levi, to which his family belonged. It was the priestly tribe, the consecrated tribe for devoted service to the Lord in the temple. So this is the, the most amazing name in Israel. You mean Levi? You're of the priestly consecrated tribe? Yeah. So what's his career choice? A tax collector. It's not that he works for the uh, IRS or anything like that. Far worse. Because in the ancient world, to be a tax collector meant that you were the ultimate scum, the ultimate traitor. The tax collectors fleeced the people, they took the money in extortion, and then gave it, making a vast personal profit, to the occupying enemy. I wonder if the picture is rather like, um, I don't know, France in... 1942, uh, where you've got the Vichy regime, the Quislings, the traitors, the Frenchmen, who are actually working for the Nazi occupying enemy against the people and the families that they were part of. This man is the ultimate lowlife. He's a Category A offender. His name is a joke. Levi of the devoted tribe, but you're working against God and his people for personal gain, helping the enemy. And here he is at the toll house. And here's the question. Do you think grace can extend this far? Because it's one thing to learn the Heidelberg Catechism and learn the doctrine of grace from 1517 and the Reformation and have it in our heads. But do you think grace can extend this far? Do you think that God can even forgive someone like this because I don't think we do. Because what we do with the gospel is we fence it. We say to ourselves, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace can, can extend this far, but I'm not sure it could ever reach them, the LGBTQI activists or the ISIS suicide bomber, or the sneering Harvard academic, or the 
horrible, progressive CNN journalist. Do you think it could even extend that far? Let me run this test just to see whether you um, do extend it this far. There's a movie called Downfall. I don't know if you've seen it. It's probably one of the most depressing films, movies I've ever seen next to Schindler's List. But it's the story, Downfall, of the last days in the bunker in Berlin as the Allies move in and as the Third Reich collapses. It's worth watching. And down in the bunker, uh, panic is erupting as others resign themselves to the fate. And then we watch Hess and his wife and children as he gives them the cyanide capsule and they, they suicide. But I want you to imagine we're in the bunker with Hitler and Eva, his wife. And I want you to imagine that they're in that bunker because he was the son, Hitler, of a pastor. I want you to imagine that he actually comes to realize what he has done. And there is the cyanide capsule, and as he begins to put it into his mouth, he turns to Eva and says, we need the forgiveness of God. And then as he puts it into his mouth and begins chewing, he says something like this, oh God, oh God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Wash all my guilt and shame away and embrace me into your eternal kingdom forever. Do you think he might be admitted into God's heaven. So offensive, isn't it? But that's the point. It's not D.O., do this and this and this. It's done. It's a gift for free by grace. And that's the stunning point that Mark has for us. The unclean outcast restored through the forgiveness of sins, for friendship with a holy God. And the picture by the end of the story is extraordinary. In the Bible, to eat with somebody is to have intimate relationship. We might call it holy communion. And here is Levi. His name is a joke, but he's fully forgiven, fully restored, eating with Jesus, the holy God on earth. Tell you what, if you're not a Christian believer, whether you're watching online or here, today would be a great day to come to this Jesus. He loves you. He has died on the cross to take away your sins. He longs to embrace you, the unclean outcast restored, through the forgiveness of sins, for friendship with the holy God, that you might know his grace and be admitted into his kingdom, where everything will be perfect forever, beyond the grave, in eternity. Come to Christ and if you are a Christian, as the world evangelizes us and says, move away from this Jesus, this coming week we're going to say no, for this is the Jesus who has come for me, who loves me. And no matter how painful and hard following him is, it's worth it. The unclean outcast restored through the definitive forgiveness of sins for a friendship with the Holy God. Marvel at this Jesus. Worship this Jesus. Hold on to this Jesus with a vice-like grip. Let's pray as we sit. Father, thank you that you are the God who has come to restore unclean outcasts through the forgiveness of sins for friendship with you forever. Fill us with your spirit, 
with confidence and joy. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.